Again and Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. Two unlikely friends take on the world. 99.9% of mankind is headed straight for hell and there's nothing you can do about it. Guys, right? no, wait, wait, I'm gay. The elect of God is a very small remnant. Yeah, I, yeah of, course, of course you are. You're, if, you're, if you don't repent, if you're engaged in some filthy conduct, you're headed straight for hell and there's nothing you can do about it. Today's episode might be a particularly hard listen. Yes, um, but if you're interested in the Westboro Baptist Church... Yep, if you're a big fan of the Westboro Baptist Church and I, their religious vibes... I'm not sure fan is the right term. <laughs> if, if people are a fan of them, this probably isn't necessarily the podcast for them. <laughs> Definitely not the right word. Um, I guess I'm just trying to make light of something a bit dark. Yeah, I am just find the whole thing beyond fascinating. Ever since I saw the first Louis Theroux documentary about them in 2007. Today we're joined by the Megan Phelps Roper, formerly of the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, You've probably heard of the church. They're notorious for picketing funerals with their homophobic signs. Perhaps their most famous and one of my (laughs) favourites, God Hates Fags. I'm glad that's one of your (laughs) favourites. She left the church in 2012 and she just brought out a new book, um, Follow, which is a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. It tells the story of her life growing up in the church in the most hated family in America. It's an amazing, amazing story. I couldn't put it down. Thanks so much for joining us, Megan. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome to a gay and a non-gay. Megan, we've really no idea where to start. And for me personally as well, it's really difficult because obviously your family and you included in that caused so much pain and shame for a lot of my LGBTQ plus family around the world. So it's really hard to know... How to start? <laughs> no, I know that's why when you said it was one of your favorites, it, it's it. Sometimes it's it's nice to talk to people who. I mean, obviously, Westboro caused a lot of pain. I personally caused a lot of pain to a lot of people, and so meeting people who saw it as ironic or didn't take it seriously, it's nice to know. You know, sometimes that, that it. I don't know. It's just a little bit of a. It I makes mean, it easier if uh, people are joking about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it doesn't take away the pain that everybody else suffered, but it does. You know, just it, it's just I don't know. I can't think of the word. Sav is a is a word I'm is a word I'm thinking of, but it's not it's not exactly what I'm reaching for. But obviously now and um, since leaving the church, you've got this amazing message that you're taking out to the world. You're basically saying that conversations and accepting each other and understanding is is how we move forward and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, so having spent all my years growing up at Westboro and and have being taught by everyone that I love that, you know, God hates gay people and Jewish people and everyone outside of our congregation and then, you know, coming to the place and that was for for decades, for for more than two decades I stood out on 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 picket lines proclaiming that message and absolutely wholeheartedly believed it. And the fact that it was conversations on Twitter that were the the key moment, that was the, the key thing that started to, you know, make me question and doubt and then ultimately to reject Westboro's ideology, it has taught me the power of civil conversation and, and reaching out to people that we disagree with. I mean, I guess in a way, and it's nowhere near the same thing, that's kind of what our podcast does <laughs> because we're a gay and a non-gay. So especially in the beginning, it was two people that were very different trying to have a conversation to kind of find a friendship within mm. that. Um, I think we've managed that all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although Dan was never holding a sign saying, yeah. you know, God hates facts. No, it wasn't. What were those pickets like? Did you enjoy them? Yeah, I mean, so there were ones where, obviously the ones where people didn't weren't coming out to protest uh, or to, to counter-protest. Um, those sometimes could get a little bit boring. Um, but absolutely, I, I, I enjoyed it. I thought that I thought that it was, you know, we were preaching the truth of God. I thought it was the most important thing in the world 
you know, Westboro taught us, and you know, we quote these Bible verses that talk about what we were doing, this idea of going out and warning people of the consequences of their sins, that that was the definition of loving our neighbor. So I thought I was fulfilling my duty to God and, you know, doing the only thing that I could do to help be useful to, to be good to my fellow man. And I thought I knew exactly what it meant to, to live a good life. And I thought I was living it. But from watching the Louis documentaries, it, it feels like you can't really do anything under the Westboro Baptist Church's gaze without being told you're going to hell. Yeah, I mean, and that was how we lived within the church too. There was a multiplicity of rules governing life within the church as well. And, you know, I was almost 27 when I left and and I, I had to get permission to, I, I still joke about how I get excited to go to the grocery store without permission. <laughs> like to the idea that I can just like decide to do something and then go do it. Like it's it's incredible to me. And that's because of all those years I spent at Westboro where, you know, they just see everything as, you know, the, the danger is everywhere. The things and the ideas and the people that could seduce you away from the truth um, were everywhere. And so we had to be constantly vigilant and protecting ourselves from those things and separating ourselves from those people. Like the word holy literally means like separate. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a lot of rules to follow. So it wasn't just the outside that was that we held to those really high yeah. standards. It was it was the same within the church too. And I guess my main question is like, why are they so obsessed with gay people? So this I is mean, something I like that, being yeah. like having people obsess over me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but why? Um, so people would ask us that question, and, and so the church started protesting gays. It was in the '90s, right? And that was when you know the fight for LGBTQ rights was really like coming to the forefront of the national and international conversation. And it has changed so much in the last you know, for 30 years almost. But so Grams would say, we're obsessed with them because you're obsessed with them. Like they're constantly, you know, talking about gay people in pop culture and, you know, Ellen coming out. And so it just, you know, Grams would say, there's no such thing as a fornicator's pride parade. You know, so this is something that, you know, people were trying to make um, holy and righteous what God calls abominable. And so we had to be out there representing God's side of the matter. I find that phrasing quite uncomfortable. Like oh, God finds it abominable no that was just i'm, I'm i hope guess, you understand that i'm just quoting no right? yeah <laughs> i don't like, agree no, with she doesn't still think that, like that <laughs> no no i get that i just i don't find that correct uh, either i don't think god finds it abominable and i think yeah we've we've talked about this a lot haven't we like scriptures that are that old how can you read that to the letter and be like oh yeah this is true this is factually how you should live your life it's, right. it's wrong right right I mean, and westboro like for them there is no doubting the bible like that for us it was the underpinning of everything that we did and so this is why, you know, for for instance, when we started protesting soldiers' funerals later, I was 19 when that happened. And, you know, I, I needed a reason. I went and I read about this in the book. I went to my mother and I was like, I need to understand exactly why we're doing this. Like, what is this? Where is the scriptural support for this? And she went through this litany of Bible passages. And so even though it was... Those, especially the early, you know, protests, you know, at, at those funerals, they were incredibly intense. Like you're watching these people in mourning, you know, walking by just, you know, not sometimes a few feet or a few yards away. And, you know, we're, it was so intense. And even though you could, I could see the pain because these, the ideas came from the Bible, it was unquestionable to me. You know, it, it was completely justified. And, and the way that we framed it was that we would say, you know, a little bit of pain in this life, like the pain that they experienced when we were out there protesting, um, is the only way for them to avoid hell in the next. And for Westboro, the Bible and hell and heaven, like all of those things are these immediate concepts. They are not abstract. You know, these are things that are the focus of our entire lives. So does the Westboro Baptist Church, am I right in thinking it, it believes that 
only members of the church are going to heaven. So they don't actually come out and say that. Instead, what they do is they point to everyone outside of the church and explain why all of them are going to hell. So as a member, you grow up with the understanding that there is nowhere outside of the church that you could go and find the truth of God. Um, So by default, Westboro is the only legitimate source of divine truth. So not even other churches that are homophobic? No, we spent so much of our time um, going out and protesting other churches, even churches who were very, very similar to us in terms of a lot of their theology, the fact that they were against... um, against gays and and against same-sex marriage. It didn't matter how, and even like, you know, really famous, you know, churches who had famously or or infamously taken a position against the LGBTQ community, we would go and protest them too because they they didn't have all of the theology, right? So there was always a reason why everyone outside of the church was going to hell. Which is really, (laughs) (laughs) it's really insane to talk about some of this now because, you know, eventually, obviously I came to realize the, insane amount of arrogance and hubris behind those positions. And it's one of these, you know, paradoxes that I write about in the book. Like we felt humble, right? You know, we would say with the apostle Paul, like that we are the chiefest of sinners. And at the same time, we believed that God had given us the most righteousness, that we had the one true interpretation. I also write about this moment where I was in a library, you know, just after I left the church and I'm looking up at these stacks of philosophy books, you know, searching through them a little bit. And then I just kind of stand back and I'm staring up at it and I'm just thinking, how did we ever think that we alone had the only answer, the only legitimate answer? Like this is centuries worth of human attempts to understand the world and the universe and and what it like what we're supposed to be doing in our lives and with our lives and and somehow we had we just it just never it was like oh well yeah it does sound a little bit arrogant but but it's true we, we, it's true we're, it's we're the so only ones funny, who it's funny though I think one of my favorite signs and I have a few but one, of my, <laughs> one of my favorite signs that would would be held up is your rabbi is a whore which is hilarious <laughs> but I don't understand why they thought it was okay to use that word or even the word fag when. That's offensive and, and almost that the Bible would condemn that. Part of the appeal is is the provocation. You know, that initially at the very beginning, we did use the word gay. Um, and then, but pretty quickly, you know, Graham said gay is a misnomer. These people aren't happy. They're, they're miserable. They're hellbound sinners. And so we can't use that word. He said, we're not going to give over the lexicon. And the reason he used that word, um, that word fag as a contraction of the word faggot, meaning like a bundle of sticks used for kindling. So he would say, these these fags burn in their lust one toward another, quoting Romans 1. Um, they fuel the fires of God's wrath and they fuel the fires of hell. And so he would say, "God, fags, that's an elegant metaphor. But there's no question that it was also for the sake of provocation. And the fact that it was wounding was part of, was, was part of the... No, I translated the church's website, parts of it, into Spanish. Like, I became totally obsessed with Spanish in high school. And so I started doing interviews in Spanish and translating that website. The title of the website is God Hates Fags. And when I came to translate the word fag, there is no, you know, there's, there is no similar metaphor word that you could use in Spanish. And so I asked, like, which, which of these words should I use? There's like one more neutral word, and then there was the one that's that's basically the, the slur in Spanish. And we picked the slur because for them, provocation was important because it got attention. Is the only thing that the church 
breaches about this stuff. So on, on a Sunday, is there any chance of, of talking about the Good Samaritan or Paul's trip to Damascus? Or is it every Sunday it's like, right, let's talk about gays? <laughs> it wasn't definitely wasn't just gays. There were there were a lot of other and Gramps would sometimes focus on extremely obscure or relatively, you know, very small parts of one passage, kind of exalted into this, you know, very important thing. Um, but it was really funny to me in the couple of years, I would say, before I, and especially the last year, I guess, before I left, I would be sitting in church on Sundays and sometimes Gramps would be talking about something that completely different. And then all of a sudden we're talking about facts again or something. <laughs> and I was like, how did we get here? And I'm like looking through the sermon, I mean, like trying to find the pivot point. I've got a stat to throw at you, actually. Um, I, was, I just wanted to apologize. I, I, I want to say like, I, I don't use that word. And so it's it's actually kind of, I'm, I'm using it because you're using it, but I, I, I don't use the word the fat yeah. word anymore. I, I appreciate it's, it's, you using it though, because I think in a way you did use it. No, that's what I'm saying. Like so that, that's that's why I do use it. Like it, it's because you know sometimes people will challenge me on that. Like, well, why do you do that? Was well, I've talked to a, I have you know you know gay friends that I've talked with about this, who say you know it's important not to you know whitewash what we did and try to make it look better than it was, and and it's important for people to see kind of the depths of you know what we did exactly what we did, and to be honest about this, I just wanted to. Just I actually that. I don't know I must have read your mind because I felt that too. I felt like I don't imagine you saying that word, but in a way you did say it. So what you're yeah. doing by saying it again is you're kind of owning that hate exactly, and kind of apologizing exactly. for it and then facing it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. thanks, but yeah, I, I get that a lot. Um, what I was going to say was there's a statistic that suggests um, people. That there, there are higher levels of homophobia in people that have an unacknowledged feeling of same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. So do you think Gramps was actually just attracted to men and couldn't deal with it? I don't think so. I never <laughs> okay. saw any evidence of that. I mean, I, I, it's not like I, I, w- I didn't live in his mind, but, you know, <laughs> anything is possible, obviously. I'm not going to, but I, I, I just never saw any... I mean, it was, a, it was a fun question rather than like a serious yeah, one. No. Really <laughs> to say, oh yeah, definitely gay. A gay and a non-gay. At some point you started, the, the, the pace sort of picks up and you, you're protesting soldiers' funerals and you're celebrating 9-11 and, yeah. and, and things like that. Are you literally celebrating? Like like when, if, if a new Metallica album comes out, I, I get excited and I'm celebrating James if new Lady Gaga music comes out. Yeah. Is that the same sort of celebration that you're having? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah? And it is, you know, it's really, it's really shameful to think about exactly how we felt sometimes. Like, again, I talk about this, this idea of watching the body counts rise with glee. That's how I, I think that's how I wrote it in the book, but that's how, that's what would happen. Like, when the tsunami or a mass shooting happens and like we're watching the news, the reason or part of it is that this is confirmation of everything we've been, we'd been warning people about, you know, this is the condign wrath of God. It's well-deserved because of the sins of this nation that we've been preaching against. So God is confirming our words. And because it came from God, you know, this is, you know, the thank God for September 11 sign, thank God for dead soldiers, thank God for IEDs. We we thought that because God had done it, therefore it was good and righteous and just, and we had a duty to celebrate in. This is something I should say. Like this, this came up later um, that I I I stopped believing that was was scriptural. You know, the thanking God part, okay, that's understandable. It's the, for instance, you know, praying for more dead soldiers, praying for more dead kids. Like that was the those were two picket signs that we held. Um, we would sit in church and and pray for God, for instance, when we were sued by the father of one of those soldiers whose funerals we protested. Um, we would pray for him to die and his lawyers to die. And we had taken these things from these passages in the Old Testament. And then 
as my belief in Westboro's ideology started to unravel, I was seeing these other passages that should, it should have changed our minds. So for instance, Jesus saying to love your enemies, bless them that curse you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. And, you know, Paul saying, bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not. So we should not have been praying for bad things to happen to them. We should have been praying for good things to happen to them. And this is one of those contradictions I write about, you know, coming to the realization like, oh my God, how could we, how could I have gone through this, this Bible? How could we have read these passages so many times and not changed our minds and our positions about these things? What was the first moment where you were celebrating something like that and thought, this isn't right? It wasn't one where, so like, for instance, I I remember, you know, on, on Twitter, this is going to be, maybe it seems a little bit weird, but when Brittany Murphy died... Um, I had been on Twitter for a few months and, you know, all my life we'd been celebrating these things. So on September 11, my reaction was awesome when I heard that news and that that's how deeply ingrained it was, you know, even by age, age 15. Um, so it was when I got on Twitter and started like experiencing these, these events, these cultural moments of, of grief, um, when th- with this new community of people who, so, um, you know, on Twitter, there was, you know, a lot, of, of course, a lot of people who responded the same way as they did on the picket line, which was a lot of hostility, um, just reflecting that, that confrontational attitude back, back at me. But there were these, you know, these really kind strangers um, who were engaging me. And we started talking about theology, but we would also talk about books and movies and music. And so this became like an alternate form of community for me. Um, whereas Westboro had been my only community before. And so seeing how they were responding to these these events and these tragedies, that's when I started to feel uneasy. And then, you know, at, over time, I didn't need to see their, you know, Twitter's responses. You know, I would see an article about, you know, I saw an article, I remember about a, a famine in Somalia. And I, you know, it was a photo essay. And the first picture co- that came up, I just completely broke down. And my mom, you know, sitting at her desk five feet from mine, heard me crying and she was like, what's going on? And I, you know, show her this picture and I, I just can't, I, I can't even talk. I'm crying so hard. And she says, will you send that to me? I want to write a Godsmack about it. So I, so I send it to her and she starts writing the celebratory blog post about how God is killing these children in Somalia. And that was that, like, that distinction between how I was responding and how she was responding. Like before, I would have thought there was something wrong with me. And that, at that point, I thought, you know, maybe something's wrong with Westboro. Is literally everything the work of God. So if, if I go into a shop and steal some chewing gum, is that the yeah. work of God? And, yes. and I'm punishing the, the guy behind the shop is in favor of gay marriage or something. Yes, but God is also punishing you because he's given you over to this sin that right. you're committing and that you're not repentant of. The crime and the punishment, both punishments from God, and but, but all of it from the hand of God. Every thought you have, every feeling. There is no thwarting the will of God. So if, if one of your, uh, if one of the church was to die because somebody had attacked them on a picket or something, would we be celebrating about that as well? Um, they, they would say that they would celebrate, but they would see it as not as a punishment from God. They would see it as because they're righteous, right? So because they're righteous, um, this is God using the death of this person to to propagate their message. I kind of want to move on from this bullshit and, and, and talk about where you're at. I don't blame you. I definitely And talk about where you're at now. But yes. there's a few other things like going around in my mind. And one of the things I find so interesting about you is like, if I'm trying to change my diet, for example, and stop eating cakes, that's really difficult to do because I've eaten cake for a long time. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, I'll wake up and I'll have not eaten cake for ages, but then I want cake again. How do you get out of thinking like you did? 
do you ever wake up and have a homophobic thought? Um, a couple of questions you asked there. So the first one, how do you change that? So obviously coming to the place where I believed that we were wrong about certain things. And that led me to the question, like, what else are we wrong about? So I, I basically came to believe that I couldn't blindly trust any thought or feeling that I had. And so it was one of those things where it was this, this process after I even it started even before I left where I would have a thought or a feeling or an instinct about something. So for instance, you know, thinking about an ex member that had been a good friend of mine before she left and, you know, knowing that the church, like I had a negative feeling about her, like, oh, I, I can't trust her. And then I had to think like, okay, that sounds like a Westboro thought. Is she actually trustworthy? And then like thinking about you know, what evidence did I have of her not being trustworthy? That's the kind of process. So for months and years after I left, so it's been seven years now, but for those, especially for those first months and couple of years, it was a constant thing where I would have a feeling about something. So, you know, the military, my husband turned on a military film and my instinct was to tell him to turn it off. I didn't want to see that because, you know, we had developed all these intense feelings of animosity toward, you know, people in the military. And so I had to stop and step back and question, like, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? Is it based on evidence? What is the evidence? And so it's, just, it's a constant processing um, and it's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you. It must be. Um, is it exhausting even just having this conversation with us? Because I imagine, like, I know that you want to spread this message and I really want to talk about that and why and stuff, but is it just exhausting, like reliving all of this? Because I believe there's a purpose to it, it's not as exhausting as you might think. I mean, sometimes I obviously I do get tired. Like there's a lot of jet lag <laughs> happening. <this week. laughs> but because I, I believe it's important because I know that I very industriously went after doing the work of the church. And now I feel a responsibility and a desire to make amends. And so anything that I can do to that end, like there, I know that it's not in vain that I'm that we're having this conversation. Let's talk about when you decided to leave. So you, you basically attribute the, the departure to Twitter and social media. Yeah. Um, so I got on Twitter to spread the church's messages about 10 years ago now. And, you know, I had no intention, of course, of being changed by the people that I met there. You know, Westboro has these sayings where they'll say like, these people have nothing to offer us. We have nothing to learn from these people. Everybody outside the church. <laughs> and they would say things like, this should be a one-way conversation. Like, we're just supposed to be preaching. We shouldn't be listening to what these people have to say. There's nothing There's nothing of value there. Very occasionally, I would get in trouble um, or have somebody question me about the fact that I had sent, you know, a bunch of messages in response to a question from this one person. Like, why are you, why are you sending so many messages to this person? And so anyway, this is how, like, how one way they want it to be. Not a dialogue, but a, you know, just, just preaching at them, basically. But that's not how it was. I was the first one of us on social media. Um, and so I was kind of representing the church's position there alone for about, I think it was a year, year and a half or so. And I started to meet people there. So again, you know, most people that I met anywhere were full of hostility. You know, people were, and they, you know, they were obviously reflecting back the kind of feelings that and sentiments that we were preaching. But there was this kind of group of individuals who started asking questions and really trying to understand where I was coming from. They, they believed that I was sincere and that I really thought that what I was doing was right. And that maybe if they listened and were willing to have a conversation that I could be reached. And that even if I couldn't be reached, that it was important for them to be there um, challenging Westboro's message in public so that anybody who might hear what we were saying and possibly be persuaded by it, that there would be another voice with a different message. And so in in those conversations, um, a couple of things happened. So like I said, I, the community aspect of it was really important. 
Um, but then there was also the the logical side of it. So people who were able to find internal inconsistencies in our doctrines. And, you know, coming from Westboro, which is this very closed system, like you said, you want to you get past all this bullshit. That was everything for us, right? <laughs> and it's this very closed system where outside arguments, like for you to say something like, well, how can you really trust the Bible? It's really old and so many people have translated and interpreted it. Like you make those kinds of arguments, that doesn't get into, because Westboro, like there's all these passages, they'll just use it to dismiss you out of hand. And that's how I had learned to, you know, so I, you dismiss any outside arguments, but the fact that this was a contradiction within our doctrine, it was the first time that I could acknowledge consciously that the church could be wrong. And that made it so that I was, for the first time in my life, I had some tiny bit of confidence in my own thinking and the understanding that it was possible for the church to be wrong. And so therefore it made me willing to challenge other doctrines. And how other, did you, sorry to interrupt. It annoys how did I'll you, just keep monologuing. If you're <laughs> How did you not think, oh my God, this is the devil tempting me? I did. I absolutely did. I mean, so that's what I thought at first. You know, I, and I went to, you know, older people in the church. My mom Twitter included. is basically Satan anyway, a lot of the <laughs> yeah. time, right? I guess that's what a lot of people think. Um, but, but no, I mean, I went to my mom and a couple of older people in the church, like looking for answers and was so swiftly shut down. And yet the contradiction remained. It was not resolved in my mind. So I stopped holding that sign. I knew I, I couldn't defend it. Um, and so I did think, you know, especially like, so less there than when I came to the point where this, you know, multiplicity of doubts and questions about Westboro's doctrines and practices, um, as you know, it's going running through my mind over and over again. And I'm trying to find a way to reconcile these two positions, you know, all of the questions and doubts. And then this, this idea that Westboro was, you know, and had the infallible word of God. And it's, you can't have both of those in your mind at the same time forever. And eventually the latter is, you know, had to give. So I, you know, when I first came to the, that, that conclusion of like, oh my God, what if we're just people? What if God isn't leading leading us here? Like we're, we're just people trying to make our way. That's when the floodgates completely opened. And every every question or doubt that I had had even slightly, you know, had just passed through my mind, just seemed, I just felt like I was being assaulted by them. And even as I'm trying to wrestle with them and like trying to feel, you know, figure out which way is up, I'm also thinking like, oh my God, this is a test from God. And I'm, you know, Satan's whispering in my ear, I'm failing this test. And, you know, so I, I did for a while feel kind of like I was going out of my mind and, you know, the act of leaving and, and finally being in a place where I could openly talk about my questions and thoughts and feelings and fears. That was, that was how I, and then that, that processing that I told you about that it's seemingly endless processing was how I found my way forward. It's amazingly brave. Um, <laughs> I just whenever people say nice things about it's it's hard for me to think like I just know that I had a lot of help I would I would not be here if Twitter didn't exist if those kind people on Twitter didn't exist I also think in a way though it's it's sort of <laughs> this is an interesting thing to say I can feel a lot of your family's influence in what you're doing now because leaving and, and being that brave and speaking out about it and spreading this new message you've got is a very similar thing to what they're doing. But it's just the flip side of it, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes it feels like I, I remember the first time I had that feeling like I went and I was talking to so many people and it was, you know, this I, all of a sudden I kind of flashed back to our picket trips where we would go and be like be constantly talking to people all day long about these things that we really believed. And I realized like this feels very much like picketing except on the other side of the, <laughs> yeah. the other side of the coin. How do you cope with that? 
<laughs> it's a little bit, it's a little bit weird. <laughs> like, you know, it, it's one of those things that like, I would not have chosen this life for myself, if that makes sense. I, it has just felt like when I first left, you know, my instinct was to run away and hide from it. Like that there, it felt like there was no, there was no way that I was going to be able to move forward. There was no way that anybody was going to let me live in the world. Um, given my past, they would never let me live it down. And so that, you know, running away and hiding was the only way out. And the only reason I started talking about it initially, I mean, I, I, obviously I, I came to the you know place where I wanted to make amends, um, but didn't think anybody would let me. It was, you know, when people started asking me to come and explain and give an account and, and to talk about it, not to justify it, but to help other people who are in similar situations get out of it and to, and to reach out to the communities that we had targeted and try to, again, finding, finding ways of, of moving forward. Two unlikely friends take on the world. Do you ever find yourself in a city where you've picketed before and somebody comes up to you not knowing the new you, thinking that you're there to be the old you? But <laughs> 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 that makes sense. And you've got like a sign in your pocket. <laughs> I, no, I do sometimes meet people who who know the old me, but they don't really know anything about what I've been doing since I left or who know that I left and that I rejected the church's doctrines, but they still see me as the old me and they talk to me as if I still believe all of those things. Um, and that if, as if I'm still out there hurting people and, and trying, you know, and not what I am doing, which is you know trying to do the opposite. And that's really hard to face, but I completely understand it. I, I don't expect forgiveness from people. I don't think that people have a duty to, you know, any, any, they don't owe me anything. Um, and, all of that tells me is that I have more work to do. Obviously, there's a lot of gay people listening. So what's your like, what do you want to say? If you have anything you well, want first, to say? Well, first, yeah. First, I'm so sorry for all of the years that I spent spreading a message that was so incredibly hurtful to so many people. Obviously, I did it because I thought it was the right thing. And I stopped doing it when I believed that it was wrong. But I know that that can't undo any of the damage. It can't bring back any of the people who, you know, who, who hurt themselves and who felt like they, they had no place to go because of groups like Westboro. And that is, you know, a devastating thing for me to consider now. And all I can do is be better and try to do what I can to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. Don't look at me when you say that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'm, we're cool. I'm just like, <laughs> say everyone else. <laughs> I, I was looking at you, but I was thinking of, I was thinking of those. You know, like, no, don't the, look at me. I don't want the responsibility of having to the, respond to that. The, actually, this is really amazing. So I'm going to talk about this. Um, I'm, and maybe he's one of your listeners. Okay. Um, I got a message. I think, what a, I think the most amazing thing that has come out of um, publishing this book was a message that I got from someone. I think he lives in Manchester, actually. Um, and he said that at the height of Westboro's, you know, at their heyday, um, he was a, a young person, you know, struggling with his sexuality and that he would, as a form of self-harm, consume Westboro's content compulsively. And that hearing me dismantle, the, you know, dismantling these arguments from the outside has given him a sense of peace and closure and getting messages like that. It just, that is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I, it's, it's amazing to know that there, that there is some good coming out of, out of all of this. I was listening to one of your interviews and you talk about how we preach equality and, you know, we've now got gay marriage in all of the UK just the other week, Northern Ireland got gay marriage too. Uh, and the U S has it, but we're still very divided. So why is that? And, and what can we do about that? 
it comes down to knowing people on the other side and being willing to have conversations with them. Even if you don't think there is anything, like the other side has no valid points. Um, the only way we move forward is by having conversations. You know, the attempts to isolate people and shame them into coming to the right answer um, generally don't work because, you know, as this anthropologist told me last year, you know, that shame is the feeling that we get when we know we have violated the norms of our community. That's how she put it. And that, like, I never felt shame for what I was doing at Westboro when when outsiders tried to shame me because they were outsiders. They were not part of my community. The fact that they were trying to shame me was proof that I was doing the right thing. So when we are as divided as we are now, trying to wield shame across those ideological divides doesn't work. We have to be willing to have conversations with people and show them our humanity and, and try to use, consider where they are and what perspective and position they're coming from. And I should say, I don't believe that it is incumbent upon any individual person in every situation to show your humanity to somebody who, who hates you. I'm not saying that at all. And there obviously there are a number of reasons that people don't um, reach out to people on the other side, including reasons of safety. Like they literally don't, don't feel safe doing it. But the more of us who are willing and able and in a position to reach out, I think that the more likely we are to really change hearts and minds. I think what you're doing is amazing. I think any of us being born into the situation that you were in would have done the same thing. We wouldn't have known any different, but I'm not sure that everybody could do what you're now doing. I think you're incredibly brave and powerful and strong. Thanks for your kind words. I really, really appreciate the encouragement. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Find us on your socials at Gay Non Gay. Listen at GayNonGay.com or just search Non Gay at your fave pod app.